All right. Hello, everybody. It's your Chapo. We're back again. We're back in the New York group. We are united again uh, on the other side of the country. We're back from L.A. here in New York. Uh, Matt and I are in the room, but but Felix is not because of a problem with his alarm clock. Would you care to explain yourself, sir? I set it for uh, 10 a.m. It happened to go off at uh, 10 p.m. That it's when it's going to go off at 10 p.m. That would indicate uh, that would suggest, though, Felix, that you set it for 10 p.m. Either that or a gremlin got into your uh, machine. Those are the two options. All right. Well, I so I set it. Without my glasses, ah. everyone knows I can't see without my glasses. I left them in L.A. That's true. I have them, actually, when I, and I was yeah. going to give them to you today, but now you don't get them. Well, it's not my fault. No. I like, refuse to accept the idea that this is my fault. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully aware. <laughs> I can't help. It's, no, it's not. There's like, I mean, we would be here for three hours if I was explaining the entire <laughs> set of reasons why it's not my fault, but it isn't. Look, I'll take... I'll take some of the responsibility here for Felix. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help but feel partly responsible for Felix's alarm clock situation because I haven't bought him a new alarm clock. Yeah, that's or I haven't explained to him how his phone is in fact also an alarm clock. Okay, okay. How do you wake up to the phone's alarm clock? Because it's pathetically silent. It's ridiculous. (laughs) You can sleep. You can sleep sleep through. Okay, here's here's how you solve the problem, Felix. You sleep with your AirPods in. So that when it goes off in the morning, you have them right in your ears. Yeah, perfect. Oh, what, what should I put in next? A fucking catheter? <laughs> Honestly, you, that you would do that. Idea. You would do that if it meant you didn't have to go to the bathroom. Um, no, I mean, well, first of all, the bathroom is a stone's throw away. I can literally just piss one of my kidney stones out next to my bed and throw it into my toilet. This, this is, I mean, I suppose this would be better back in your, uh, your Greenpoint apartment where you literally had to climb down a ladder to go to the bathroom. <laughs> that sucked. You know, it was like, it's like when you woke up, when you like had morning wood, that was just like, is this the morning I'm going to like, it's going to like fall off? I'm going to hit it on the ladder. <laughs> fall off. Just gonna crack. That it. was a real fear I dealt with every day. Well, it's uh, it's nice to be back here uh, in New York. Though I'm, I'm just like I'm a little disappointed though. I'm walking around. I'm just like walking around my block, and I'm like, no cactuses anywhere. This sucks. This is bullshit. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny though. It's like the whole week. The whole week we were in LA. Like all of our all of our LA friends. I felt like the, every night we went out, it was like they were giving me they were giving me the hard sell on moving to Los Angeles. And I gotta say. It was kind of working, and I was talking to my friend Joe about this, and he was like, "He was like, oh, he was like, you have not even like scratched the surface of the cloud fucking in this city. It's like 160 Twitter, 160 thousand Twitter followers. Like, next time we go there, it's going to be like, uh, you know, like like your varsity athlete going to a recruiting trip to USC in 1984. Like Magic and OJ Simpson are going to pick you up at the airport and take you to a party at Jack Nicholson's house. That would I'm imagining a party at Jack Nicholson's house now. It's just it would be very depressing." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but 1984 Jack Nicholson's oh house the best um anyway i would like to uh, i'd like to start today's show uh with a little little selection from the new york times that is very much in tune with what we talked about uh last time we were together um this sense of like sort of post-pandemic post-quarantine um just the as, as sort of people's social lives thaw out again and people return to like sort of a, a, a public life of of hugs and kisses um, just the extreme paranoia 
about other people that has been sort of percolating throughout this last year or so. And uh, the New York Times, thankfully, has come through with a basically one of the most psychotic things I've ever read in this newspaper. So I think I'd like to like to dive in today. Uh, this is the the article: How to rearrange your post-pandemic friendscape. Reentry offers an opportunity to choose which relationships we wish to resurrect and wish are better left dormant. So the New York Times is going to tell you uh, how to select who are the real ones, who are the day ones, and who are the fake friends. And I, I swear to God, like this certain like certain demographic of like New York Times readers, like there is no group of people on the planet more concerned about the phenomenon of fake friends than these people. They just hate the idea of having their life energy sucked. By some social remore, and by, um, by there's a very specific kind of fake friend. This is not this is not the classic Facebook style of face, fake friend, the one that steals your headphones or talks shit about you behind your back. The New York Times style fake friend is a friend that offers you no entrepreneurial insight into your business scape. Yeah, yeah. This was, um, you know, what I'm ready to defend this article. I I like some of the things they suggest in here, but I would. I would. Um, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna see it, but uh, it should be more honest because, like, everyone says this. Everyone's like, "Oh, like you don't need friends in your life that like hold you back because of their bad habits." The only reason you stop being friends with someone is because they're annoying. And it's like if you wrote that article, great. Well, this is by uh, Kate Murphy, and I'd just like to begin here. She writes. Any traumatic experience, like a breakup, health scare, death in the family, or financial crisis, has a way of destabilizing social networks. We instinctively gravitate towards those who provide comfort and support and reflexively withdraw from those who drain and drag us down. It was no different at the height of the pandemic, except that the risk of infection meant that we had to be more intentional and maybe even a little calculating about who we allowed into our orbit. For many, the pruning process was illuminating, if not a little liberating. COVID-19 provided an excuse to shed unsatisfying and unfulfilling relationships while giving people the time and space to strengthen bonds with those they truly cared about. As pandemic restrictions ease in the United States, and we may once again belly up to an all-you-can-eat buffet of social activity, the question is, will we pile our plates and gorge or be more selective and stick to what nourishes and sustains us? Okay, I just want to pause here because this, this piece is already giving you a tell about like the, the absolute disgust this person has for other human beings. And it, it's the metaphor of like uh, having friendships as like an all-you-can-eat buffet is, is like... And it's like, are we going to choose to eat an all-you-can-eat buffet of friendship and social activity? Or will we choose to be a little bit more abstemious and select only what nourishes and sustains us? Uh, we're going to get into this person's, like, because, you know, a big theme in this article is um, her dislike of people who are overweight. But I think it's telling that the, like, the analogy she chooses about friendships is about eating too much food. Yeah, you have to have keto friendships only. <laughs> she writes psychologists sociologists and evolutionary anthropologists say it behooves us to take a more curatorial approach when it comes to our friends because who you hang out with determines who you are we take it for granted but having friends is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom says dr nicholas christakis a professor of social and natural science at yale university and author of apollo's arrow a book about the impact of covid19 and past plagues on society other members of Friendship Club include chimpanzees, elephants, and dolphins. So, okay, the scientist is saying uh, human beings are alone in the animal kingdom in having friends, and there's like, you know, 
It's it, having friends is an evolutionary strategy. It's it's not just something that makes us feel good. We should always be mindful of things in evolutionary terms. But then she lists chimpanzees, elephants, and dolphins like the three smartest and coolest species of animals. So it's, it's no accident that they also have friends. Yeah. No. I mean, even even uh, apes have friends across uh, subspecies and shit. Like, I mean, we've seen those orangutans who see the gibbon babies and they're like, "Whoa, what is that?" Also, does this person can, can I brachiate with him? Has this person never fucking gone to the dodo and seen interspecies friendships, <laughs> like a chicken yeah. and a dog hanging out? I, I love I love those like the interspecies friendships because like uh, the Reddit guy thing is to post those and go faith in humanity restored, and it's like humanity. <laughs> no people here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like yeah, this is like a, a meerkat and a lizard being friends. It's just it's just like. Like I said, like the metaphor about um, having your social life is like, are you going to gorge yourself on junk food or are you going to eat uh, baby carrots as a snack? <laughs> um, and then the, it's just like talking about friendships in terms of like evolutionary anthropology, which is like, I'm sorry, any any social science or other science or whatever you want, any discipline in which the word evolutionary is put in front of it is you can guarantee is absolute hokum. Yeah, I, lo- I love I love Evo site guys, because it just is like. There's like no way to peer review it, or it's just like a complete pseudoscience. And yeah, you can you could say things like you know the function of women going to the bathroom together is that when we were monkeys, women would uh, all pee on a snake nest to drown them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay, fine, whatever, man. I can't prove you wrong. I mean, and then the other half of the of Evo Psych discipline seems to be coming up with academic reasons why it's okay to cheat on your wife. So like when she catches you, you can give her a paper to be like, honey, it's all here. It's in my brain. It's in my DNA. It's nothing I can do. Well, about there's it. some good stuff in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it says here, friendship is an evolutionary advantage. He said that allows us to form alliances, cooperate, exchange ideas and learn from one another. I mean, you could all, it's also, you have fun with one another. I mean, it's also about, about having fun playing. It's about fucking, Frolicking. yeah, it's about going to the movies, having a drink. Just, just going, vibing. watching the game, vibing. vibing. Yeah. yeah, there's no the word the, vibe does not. Appear the, yeah, the word vibe article. or fun does not appear anywhere here. Uh, she writes, "Can't put a dollar amount on that, so fuck it." Having friends who encourage, stimulate, and support you is associated with improved immunity, lower blood pressure, and higher cognitive function. Like th- th- this is all bullshit. It's just it, it's associated with having fun with good vibes. Matt, yeah. you're exactly right. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah. And that I don't other give stuff, a fuck about low blood, like, blood oh, pressure you, or high our cognitive function. Well, those are all I, knockout effects of vibing. <laughs> Having no friends, toxic friends, or superficial friends not only can make you feel insecure, lonely, or depressed, but also can accelerate cellular aging and increase your risk of premature death. Okay, another thing i got to put here. If you have good friends and not toxic, superficial friends, the activities you do with those friends also accelerates cellular aging and increases your risk of premature death. It seems, as if, uh, it seems as if it should be easy to distinguish between true and false friends, but that's not always the case. Research shows that only half our friendships are mutual. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so yeah, look to your left, look to your right. <laughs> One of these friendships is not mutual. That is, only half of those who we think are our friends feel the same way about us. Damn. Blame, egoism, optimism, or perhaps the fact that social media has turned friend into a verb. Or it could be that we are socially slothful. 
Friendships take a significant amount of time and effort to develop and maintain, so we often settle for whoever happens to be around or is pinging us online. It's inertia that keeps you tied to friends whom you find tiresome because it's easier and less anxiety-producing to keep them around than it is to cultivate new friendships. The pandemic shook us out of our social ruts. Now we have an opportunity to choose which relationships we wish to resurrect and which are better left dormant. Ask yourself, who did I miss and who missed me? (laughs) 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 Yeah, keep that circle small. Um, And also, think about friendships forged during the crisis, maybe with people in your pandemic pod or neighbors who regularly came by to commiserate. If you okay, the woman who wrote this article was not having neighbors come by to fucking commiserate with no. her. She had no one in her fucking she pod. Put a fucking, uh, she put landmines <laughs> in her front yard. She, she yeah, met this the fucking Grubhub driver with a shotgun. <laughs> this woman like might as well live in Libria. <laughs> like that's what her friendships were like. Hanging out with Tay Diggs wearing uh, frogs. Yeah. yeah, no, this is a completely like she is on a. Uh, What's the pill called? Prosium. 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 Uh, Yeah. Be sure to. She's on Prosium and she's like unfriending sense offenders. (laughs) And he goes, rather than thinking about who you want to keep or purge from your social network, (laughs) Suzanne Deggs White, a professor of counseling at Northern Illinois University, suggested imagining how you want to arrange your friendscape where people inhabit the foreground, middle ground, or background, depending on how much time and emotional energy you invest in them. It requires daily or weekly attention to maintain foreground friends, so there are necessarily a limited number of slots, four to six maximum. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those may be filled with your romantic partner, parent, sibling, or child. None of those are friends! (laughs) Romantic partner, parent, sibling, or child are not friends. So they're saying those slots are filled. Those are already filled by your family members or spouse. So yeah, it's like, sorry, no room, motherfucker. No room (laughs) in, get out of here. Because they are in front and center, foreground friends are the ones who have the most profound impact on your health and well-being, for good or ill. Indeed, depressed friends make it more likely you'll be depressed. Obese friends make it more likely you'll become obese, and friends who smoke or drink a lot make it more likely that you'll do the same. So again, like, the way, so this, this is even better. She goes on to say, the reverse is also true. You will be more studious, kind, and enterprising if you consort with studious, kind, and enterprising people. That sounds fucking boring. Fuck that shit. School's over. <laughs> Who the fuck? Yeah, if consorting with the studious and enterprising. No thanks. <laughs> Get the fuck yeah, out of here. Literally- I'm trying to fucking smoke and gorge and fucking drink too much with my, with my cool, depressed friends. Yeah. I'm literally uh, listing famous women, women from history that I'd like to fuck. <laughs> I like I have I have one test like this. Like if you are an adult ass person and you're like I have homework tomorrow, then like I don't want you dragging me down with you. Yeah, you're tr- you're trying to take a uh, you're trying to take a bubble bath with Elizabeth of Bathory in your mind. <laughs> yeah, Helen of Troy. Did she have the perfect ratio? We'll find out. She goes here. Uh, that is not to say you should abandon friends when they are having a hard time. I mean, it kind of does is seem it, like that's it, what you're saying. It's, it's, it's literally saying, saying you're, saying. Out. Yeah. you're saying that they're literally going to infect you with their, bad, with their sadness. Yeah, you're going to drown Okay, you. well, I would like to defend this part of the article. <laughs> of course. Go um, ahead. Like, the mistake the author makes is, like, you know, it's that, like, bullshit, like, modern psych way of being, like, 
oh, well, you know, when you're on a plane, uh, you know, you put on your oxygen mask before you can help anyone because you don't want to run out of oxygen, blah, 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 even though that's the way that airplanes get you to megadose fluoride before death. <laughs> but, um, I mean, let's be honest. The reason that most people, like, everyone has a friend who just, like, you know, they like having a bad life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's annoying it's annoying it doesn't mean that that's why you should stop being friends with them but that is like why people do it it's never like a you have to be a real psycho to be like oh it's a practical thing i i really want to get p promoted to like chief project manager i want to be the i want to be the best graphic designer who lives in hudson yards that's not the real reason the real reason you do it is just because it's like you know, okay, you know, the, this person likes it when bad stuff happens to them. Well, they've engineered their entire lives towards it. And it's your choice. You know, is that too annoying for you? Or is that one of the things that gives texture and uh, friction to your life that you have to try to help to figure them out? I think both, both are valid, you know, both are valid. Both have to go on a case by case basis. The, the problem is, is when you try to interject this like produ productivity morality yeah. into it that doesn't really well, exist. Also, she already said that your foreground friends are your spouse, siblings, or children. And like these are people that you don't really have a choice about associating with. That's the thing. That she does not understand with. what a friend is. The <laughs> yeah. whole concept of a friend is someone who you don't have to be around. That's what makes them a friend, and as I'll, opposed to a different thing, um, is that there are people who you just hang out with out of mutual desire to hang out. That's it. That's what makes yeah. friends. Yo, my kid has been kind of yeah. depressed lately and non-enterprising. I'm thinking about ditching this asshole. <laughs> that is the thing that's like cool about this is like you can tell like it's it's an implied thing. If she could find a way to like cut toxic children out of her life, she Absolutely. would. Absolutely. Because yeah, she doesn't understand what friendship is because there is no tangible benefit to it beyond like oh, beyond her fantastical evolutionary notions that well it'll help me live longer if i'm with some i hang out with somebody who who uh you know watches their macros or whatever the fuck that's it that's the only reason there's no other reason to engage with a person unless you have some sort of mutual obligation to one another what's in it for me is the only thing that is in her head and that means friends are going to be weird and alien and frankly uncomfortable and she's going to look for a way to justify uh cutting them out and and since yeah she's a striver she can't just say they're annoying because that reflects poorly on her character. She can say though that they're not efficient. Yeah, and that that's the thing. Like if you break down, ideally if you break down most of your friends, most of them should really not be able to do that much for you. Yeah, um, I know mine mine can. They're fucking losers. <laughs> they suck. But I you know I fucking we're love friends them. because. I, yeah, <laughs> no, we're friends because, um, like, no, they're just, they work in different fields or they work, like, it's just, like, it's just not one of those things where it's like, oh, I need you to contact David Geffen by Spirit Owl <laughs> so I can get a film made. They're not able to do that, but, I mean, no, we're friends because, like, you know, I enjoy talking to them and think they are interesting and good people, and, uh, like, if you, if you're the primary reason that you're friends with someone doesn't relate to like 
you know, you enjoy talking to them a lot. I just did. A, I just. I, I don't know what to tell yeah, you. No, That's psycho. I just did. A, I just did like a word search of this article. The words "fun," "funny," "laughter," and "party" do not appear even once in this entire article. But she says here, yeah, it's a good idea to be mindful of who you are spending the majority of your time with, whether on or offline, because your friends' prevailing moods, values, and behaviors are likely to become your own. I mean, don't don't you like don't you get friends because their moods, values, and behaviors are already your own? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 you you come together through like a mutual understanding or a, a rapport around something. You don't go like the Terminator looking to find a, a maximizer in the world. Like, ooh, who who can like who can bring up my XP stats on uh like crafting or whatever the fuck? Yeah. I mean, like, even, like, people in, like, the Upper East Side or whatever, like, all, like, all the really sharp women. Who <laughs> that is the Upper there. East Side, Felix. I'm glad you're figuring out the difference. Now. Yeah, no, they're sharper on the East Side. Uh, it's, like, even, like, they have a better view of this because there is, like, okay, if you're doing, like, you know, upper upper middle class or whatever society, it's, like... Yeah, there is this ethos of like, what, where can this one person get me? Where can blah blah blah? But I mean, they still. If you watch these uh, nature documentaries, like Real Housewives, it's like a lot of it still is like, is this person funny and fun to talk to? Well, also she's missing a uh, like a big element about like why people have bad friends in their lives, and especially if you're talking about like Real Housewives type of shit. Everyone loves to, every friend group loves to have one person whose life is a fucking mess and is always a fucking disaster because they love talking about that person. Oh, yeah, no. We, um, I'm going to name all of them in my various friend groups right now. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to feel like you've got your shit together comparatively. Well, she goes on, she writes here. But yeah, I mean, like, that is, no, that is a common thing. And it's not like, okay. That's very common in, like, groups of friends where it's, like, I've known people for, like, decades, right? Like, people since childhood. Because that's just going to happen. Like, law of averages, there are going to be some people who just, like, they catch a bunch of rough breaks or, like, maybe they just can't figure it out or they're just, you know, congenitally unlucky because there are people who are just fucking unlucky. It's, like, yeah, not everyone's going to have, like, the same idealized version of their life. But, like... I mean, this just sounds like someone who doesn't have a lot of lifelong friends. Everyone's got one person in their friend group whose alarm clock doesn't work and can't show up to functions <laughs> in their ass. No, no, I mean, a lot of my equivalent in other friend groups who have alarm <laughs> clock problems, they're not able to run the ship of state as I am able to. Well, she has a, little, a few more, a little more advice here. She says, people who... Uh, she goes, what are the hallmarks of good foreground friends? I mean, she's already established they're related to you by blood or marriage. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, can't get rid of them, unfortunately. Foremost, they make you feel better about the world and about yourself. They are there for you, listen to you. And while they may not always agree with you, they get you. There's a sense of mutuality and reciprocity in terms of helping and engagement. And crucially, you fundamentally enjoy being with them just as they enjoy being with you. People who do not belong in your foreground are those who don't seem genuinely pleased when something good happens to you and show a glint of schadenfreude when things go wrong. Another clue is they are boastful, self-righteous, fault-finding, or prickly in conversation. Yeah, I would love to hang out with this woman. I would love to fucking socialize with the, with the author of this article. I'm sure she's not self-righteous, fault-finding, or prickly at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. She's talking is, about herself. Or they, what, is, she goes, they, oh, what is this woman's like job? Okay, it says like, here that she is the author of 
you're not listening. What you're missing and why it matters. <laughs> she okay, wrote a book so about how no one listens to her. She so she just writes these like bullshit like you know I'm really into social dynamics books. She goes, uh, um, you can't have good friends if you aren't a good friend yourself. Do you get in touch only when you want something or have nothing better to do? Are you the one who is argumentative or always talking about yourself? Are you saying or doing things to diminish your friend's joy? Are you too demanding, judgmental, emotionally unavailable? Certainly no one is a perfect friend all the time. We all have our less than admirable moments. But a solid and good friendship is one where both of you are able to work through intentional and unintentional slights. I'm just going to skip ahead to the end here. She just says here, of course, your personality and your history with the other person will determine how you disengage, but often the best course <laughs> is to just slowly back off. <laughs> just stop. Yeah, just stop answering their texts and phone messages. Yeah, new phone. Who dis? Yeah. yeah. Politely decline the other person's invitations and don't extend any of your own. Ghosting is almost never a good strategy. Isn't that what she's just talking about? She's just saying no, politely no, slowly, ghost them? Okay, like slowly. You, you just you taper off. Okay, all right. Unless someone, is, unless someone is irredeemably toxic, it is better to be gracious. Let the person gradually recede into the background. <laughs> Let them gradually drop out of your life so you don't care if they live or die. Rather than erasing them entirely from your friendscape. You never know. Just as you can outgrow friendships, you can also grow back into them. And in conclusion, this is why I will not be attending your baby shower, Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the idea that I, I fear that you have a congenital negativity that will translate into your child. <laughs> I like to say you can outgrow friendships. You can also grow back into them. It's like, pfft, not if you fucking don't reply to a couple of my texts. After that, you're fucking dead to me, bitch. Especially <laughs> if you wrote this article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It, it's like, yeah. What is her process it, like? It, it, like, oh, yeah, I've been uh, watching from afar, and your productivity's gone up. Hey, you're a lot less fat. Yeah. Do you want to <laughs> hang out? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Psycho. I see you stopped gorging. Care to go for a walk, or would that be too much for you? Uh, so yeah, that's the New York Times on friendships. <laughs> the thing, the th don't we, we all love them. We all need. We all. We all have to have friends. But sometimes you just have to paint paint out friends from your foreground. Just make a make a yeah. building where their body used to be in your mind palace. Just, just bulldoze them into a ditch in your mind palace <laughs> so that you can build up a glowing facade. Sometimes your friend can't go to the normal barber. They have to go to the nude one. <laughs> They've like let their life get derailed because this thing we all fantasize grab is grabbing the barber's dick they can't stop thinking about it <laughs> Look, some you have to cut that person out of your friend group some of your friends are just incapable of recognizing that you're undergoing a great becoming and that before you that they are an ant in the afterbirth <laughs> your, your, your friends they owe you all they owe you all no else you and the others you owe me Oh. Yeah, that is that is the main like the main subtext of this that is really incredible is that it's like lady, you think you're some kind of prize? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where it's like everyone is vying to be friends with her because of what she can do for them. This woman would like um yeah, if I was friends with her, she could not do anything for me. She would accomplish nothing. Yeah. What, you know, where are you a big wheel down at, you know, the WeWork space? <laughs> Yeah, look, what are you going to get done for me? She's, Nothing. She's the author of. She's the author of. I'm still talking, and please listen to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the call got disconnected. <laughs> it's her third book. She's, she, she just she published a, a, a latest article in an academic journal. It's called That's Not Funny. <laughs> Stay down from day one, so I say, no, no friends, no, no friends, no, no friends, no, no, no. Stay down from day one, so I say, no, no friends, no, no friends, no, no friends, no, no, no. Transitioning into the uh, the second thing I want to read today, um, this also comes courtesy of the New York Times, and this is an opinion piece by Ezra Klein um, that's summing up his latest interview with former President Barack Obama. The headline: The point was to win. Barack Obama writes, and this is like, this, let's just take like just let's take a foray into the mind of our ex President Barack Obama and his most odious sycophant, Ezra Klein. So, like, yeah, like, uh, Ezra just interviewed Obama for his, like, new New York Times podcast or something like that. And, you know, Obama, you know, he, he, likes, to, he likes to cut loose now in his post-president. And, like, you know, sort of, sort of tell it how it really is. You know, like he never did when he was actually president oh, or at, at any moment during the Trump administration. But he's kicking, he's sort of, he's, 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 letting, he's letting his hair down a little bit now. He's getting a little bit... It's just spitting some real truth and facts here that, you know, may, may, maybe he felt a little bit hesitant to when he was president of the United States of America. Because, uh, you know, uh, you, you can only do so much with that job. Whereas, you know, if you have a Netflix deal, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, you can list your top favorite dog breeds by flavor. Just <laughs> 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 him and Bruce Springsteen have a podcast where he's just like, oh, man, I got to go with Cocker Spaniel, number one, Obama. And he's uh, just like, oh. Let me be clear. Terriers, uh, they're a little stringy. Uh, and not to have a lot of uh, flavor. But uh, any kind of Labrador, uh, it's just absolutely uh, delicious. I remember I was once over at uh, little, little Steven's house. And uh, he, had, he had a Chihuahua shish kebab that was uh, got a got a honey miso glaze on those puppies, and uh, they were really something. That sounds that sounds great, boss. Yeah, Tony Tony throwing his phone. Goddamn orange Phil schnauzer. <laughs> okay, so this is this is uh, this is Ezra Klein about his his wonderful chat with Barack Obama. Begins with a quote. He says here, "My entire politics is premised on the fact." that we are these tiny organisms in, the, in this little speck floating in the middle of space, Barack Obama told me, sitting in his Whoa, office in Washington. Dude. Whoa. I mean, that, like, that, that's right. Hume King's back. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's back out that gas, if he was ever wrong. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you're a fucking sack of meat who lives on a floating rock in you're space. You're made of and, oh, yeah. fucking stardust. Uh, like what does yeah, that mean? Yeah. I, that could be any politics. Yeah, yeah. Could be no, no, like if, or if anything, it's on like, that. But like, if, if your politics is premised on that, like, there's some fairly like like frightening implications about. Well, I mean, if we're, we're all just atoms in the universe, yeah, nothing actually matters. Would you matters, really care if uh, one atom just ceases to exist? Yeah, or it's not? like I'm Doctor Manhattan, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to oversee the destruction of humanity. Uh, and it's funny to me. Uh, my entire politics is premised on the, the the fact that our consciousness is but a thin layer of pond scum above an unbelie- unfathomably deep blackness that goes on for the abyss, and at the bottom is the Great Ones, and we're attempting <laughs> yeah, to contact the, them. The two possibilities for this is that, like, yeah, Obama has been, he's been chafing again and reading, like, Chuck Windig tweets, <laughs> or, or that he's, like, a human being who ascended into being a Lovecraftian Great One. He goes, I, as it writes... I was the one who had introduced the cosmic scale, asking how proof of alien life would change his politics. 
But Obama, in a philosophical mood, used the question to trace his view of humanity. The differences we have on this planet are real, he said. They're profound, and they cause enormous tragedy as well as joy. But we're just a bunch of humans with doubts and confusion. We do the best we can, and the best thing we can do is treat each other better because it's all we've got. What a bunch of absolute drivel. I mean, this is like the whole like uh, the Reinald Niebuhr thing where he's just like yeah. like after the fact justifying that like he could only do so much yep. as president. I mean, you know, because, you know, we're all just human beings and we're inherently flawed and tragic. So, yep. oh, well, sorry, I had to bail out the banks to the tune of like a few billion dollars. Oops. Fortunately, this is like, yeah, this is like just pure fucking pablum of like, oh, we should be nice to each other. Thanks. I hadn't thought about that before. Oh, and by the way. Um, the fact that uh, Ezra Klein and Obama are using the UFO uh, like disclosures to, like to, to to spout this nonsense is the surest indication you? that the U- this UFO drop is one thousand percent an op. Well, I mean, literally in the sense that the government's doing it, but yeah. for the purpose of getting us all, uh, yeah, looking somewhere else. Those UFO drops, it's like the conspiracy theory equivalent of like state-sanctioned graffiti walls. <laughs> <laughs> They fucking pissed me off so much. Like like Bushwick street art. It's like Ben yeah. Franklin, but he has cornrows or something. Yeah, yeah. spread love. It's the Brooklyn way. <laughs> fuck you. Oh, God, fuck. Fuck. <laughs> the, best, the best Bushwick street art is it's uh, Snoopy and Charlie Brown, and Snoopy's lying on top of his dog house, and he's got a syringe in his arm, and the syringe has the Twitter bird on it. And then Charlie is saying, how many likes did we get? That's a real, that's an actual piece of Bushwick Street. Wow, that says a lot. It says many things. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, we're, we're just a bunch of humans with doubts and confusion. But the greys, they have none of that. They're, they're pure consciousness. They have no doubt, no weakness. Um, how Obama navigated the differences we have on this planet is the primary topic of A Promised Land, the first volume of his presidential memoirs. One passage in particular had stuck in my mind for weeks. Obama is reflecting on the Tea Party uprising and the thrumming undercurrent of racism that powered it. He recalls the din of cable news chatter debating the Tea Party's true nature and the pressure that built for him to render his presidential verdict. He admits that his White House wanted nothing to do with this debate, in part because it had reams of data telling us that white voters, including many who supported me, reacted poorly to lectures about race. Uh, he goes on to quote Obama at length, but he goes, yeah, it's not worth reading, but he goes here, the poet Robert Frost famously said that a liberal is a man too broad-minded to take his own side in a quarrel. This is not quite true of Obama, but it is nearly true of his authorial style. A Promised Land, which covers the first half of his presidency, is not 700 pages long because it limbs so many events. It's 700 pages long because it presents so many different views of Obama and his motivations. I would say it's 700 pages long because the fucking editor was just cowed into submission by a former president. And they were like, uh, actually, Obama, we don't need 50. You're not, you're not now scarred here. We don't need 50 pages about you know, how you felt about you know, the, the rose. I don't know. Like, it's just like, we don't need 700 pages of your self-justifications here. Yeah, Obama, well, this is Obama's, like, fifth autobiography. I think he just loves talking about himself. No, he does. He's a psychotic narcissist. I mean, that's, that's the only people, and these are, I mean, many presidents have been that, obviously, but we are now at the point where it is only going to be those from now on because there's no other reason to run for president because everybody in a position to run knows that you don't actually get to do anything. You don't actually have any power. Uh, you can only do things that uh, are bad 
And so the only reason to be president is to ju- is to soothe and, and validate that titanic fucking narcissism. He goes here over and over again. Obama tries to make clear that his assailants have a point that his perspective is bounded by experience and self-interest. This is true in his personal recollections, which give ample space to Michelle Obama's doubts about his decision to pursue a political career, and it is true in his political remembrances, which always try to inhabit his critics' arguments, or at least their sentiments. So, like, in his own fucking memoir, he has to give voice to, like, what Mitch McConnell thought about him. Well, yeah, but that's just it, is that he gives voice to the... uh the fake right-wing criticisms of his yeah, decisions. but not any of the left-wing no, criticisms. No, of course, because of those are by definition yeah. absurd because don't they realize that we're little atoms? Yeah. He goes, but what, what strikes me about that passage is that you can see Obama's idealism and calculation shimmer into a single point. Oh, God. I mean, just as Ezra just has relaxed his throat for this fucking article, man. He's going, he's going all the way in. After suggesting that the motivations of his Tea Party critics were unknowable, he resolves the argument by saying the politics of it were thoroughly knowable. Whatever his own intuitions might tell him, whatever truths the history books might suggest to cry racism or even to coolly point it out, was to lose votes. And neither his version of hope nor, nor of change would be helped along by defeat. Okay, so like he's going on here to say, like, look, um, he's saying like oh like what, what would calling the tea party racist have done like you know like like actually to to ameliorate any of the evils associated with it right and if you accept that like you know like there he may have a point there about like oh like this would this would lose me votes and like if we want to if, if 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 politics is about winning then you have to make compromises and that like you know me as like you know the first black president i can't call the tea party racist because it's just americans and you know white voters don't like having being lectured on race okay like if you grant him that point then it becomes even more glaring that his presidency did not even half-heartedly attempt to uh, pursue any politics that would benefit like universally all Americans, black, white, or otherwise. Like there was no, uh, there was no support for labor unions, no support for fucking health care, no support for people facing eviction during yeah. the economic crisis. In fact, they just gave banks money to kick them out of their fucking homes so that they could get them to rent them. And if they'd done something about that, maybe the fucking Tea Party wouldn't have mattered so much. Like, the idea that the only option on the table was call the Tea Party racist or not, as opposed to not pursue a total recapitalization of Wall Street at the expense of everyone else in the country. Exactly. And it's just like, like you know, like, yes, yes, by itself calling the Tea Party racist like wouldn't accomplish anything and may have, you know, uh, hurt him politically or whatever. But, like, it's just like... Like I said, it just makes it so fucking jarring because he wasn't doing anything wasn't else. Doing anything else? Well, okay. If you think about it, being evicted is just moving one set of atoms. <laughs> I mean, if you were to look at yeah. the Milky Way galaxy from the Hubble telescope or whatever, could you tell if someone was evicted or not? No. Yeah, I mean, it's no, like it would be the yeah. least important thing that happened that day. Yeah, you know, like the like the stars that you look up and see in the night sky. I mean, those stars were evicted a billion years ago, and you're only getting the light now because they're just they're showing up at our doorstep being like, hey, can you put me up? Um, he goes, in our national story, Obama is framed as a practitioner of a kind of anti-politics, an almost naively optimistic figure who rose to power downplaying our divisions only to find his administration's legacy swallowed by them. I mean, I don't know what national story Ezra is reading from. I mean, I think like naively optimistic is the exact opposite of who Obama yeah. is as a person. No, I mean, I think he is total cynical, cravenly player. cynical in yeah. every regard. But that's but naively naive is is the only 
uh, story that guys like fucking Ezra can tell because it's the only one that uh, exculpates their their guy. Like the yeah. like he was their guy. Like Obama was sprung from the head of like this entire class of people to represent them, and he can't be a, a lizard person. He has to have. The, the fault of, of believing too much in America. And, you know, yeah. it should be... Sh- Obama Obama has showed up at every... He's like the Frank Carlucci of stopping, like, organic social movements and events. Like, all he's done post-presidency is, like, when they were going to do that NBA walkout, he's like, uh, uh what, what, if, what if you wore a, sh- a shirt with a message on it instead and, like, kept making these guys money? <laughs> like making the phone call to consolidate the primary probably a billion other things that we won't hear about for years it's like that is not what an optimistic man does no obama like just as someone like his outlook on life like he makes lbj look like patch adams (laughs) and i mean like this dynamic that you're talking about is very much true in ezra klein's own career because you remember before Obama became president, Ezra, in one of him and Matt Iglesias' perpetual rebrandings, was a healthcare wonk. And his number one issue is the need for single-payer healthcare in the American healthcare system. And then as soon as Obama became president and like the ACA rolled out, what did Ezra Klein do? Yeah. He just promoted the ACA as like he was like, hey, look, this remember, is what remember when the get. website came out and Ezra was talking about how cool and oh, fun they were it was? so like they were creaming themselves yeah. over that fucking thing. You get to pick your plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was GTA for once. <laughs> yeah. your, um, ACA, ACA is single payer. You're paying. <laughs> you yeah, get exactly. to go to the doctor a single time in a year. Yeah. He goes, but his book is a reminder that the inverse story has always been just as true. Obama is thoroughly a politician, and because he understood the depth of our divisions, he treated them gingerly, at times fearfully. In a particularly striking moment, Obama reveals that across the country, across the entirety of his presidency, his single largest drop in white support came when he criticized a white police officer who arrested Henry Louis Gates Jr., a black Harvard professor, on the porch on his home, of his home. It was support that I'd never completely get back, Obama writes. Support that he'd never completely got back, but then easily won re-election anyway. Like, I mean, what, what about the support that he lost by not sticking up for his friend? Yeah. Or the, the, the support that drained over the course of his presidency because they didn't fucking do anything. Like you said, I mean, it was hope and change, and then they didn't do anything. Doesn't like, that fucking count in any of these metrics? It all has to come down to the, like the bubbling racism of America, which somehow was tamped down enough to elect him twice. Yeah, but then bubbled up because he criticized a cop, or the Tea Party showed up dangling fucking tea bags. Well, like you said, ears. the fact that like they they could have, I mean, like instead of making banks whole again to the tune of what four trillion dollars yeah, what you said like, like something it's a like lot that. of it's t's it's like, not like, b's yeah like but also with no strings attached yeah not nationalizing a single one of them not sending a single one of these ceos to jail and then the housing market what did he do he, they could have bypassed they could, they could have just made every homeowner in america whole again they were promising of, to instead do of, that instead of fucking and that's the thing this tea party that, yes, obviously, there's a lot of racial uh, elements to its its motivation, and there was a racial edge to it. And obviously, the people who made it up were were if you were able to like do a pH test on them, they'd come back racist. But the thing that started it all was this dipshit on CNBC yelling about bailing out homeowners, which they didn't end up doing. So they got mad about a handout to losers in the market. That didn't happen. So those people still ended up getting fucked. Everybody ended up still getting fucked. So the only uh, arguments anybody was having was this piddling bullshit. 
He writes here, uh, much in our politics is not what it seems. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, no, this is back to the Lovecraft shit they're talking about here. Um, contrary to the... <laughs> much of what's under our skin is not what it seems. Um, contrary to the aesthetics of our current political debate, there is a deep optimism in the confrontational politics of the modern left and a quiet pessimism in the caution with which Obama speaks. To ask the question bluntly, who truly believes America to be a racist country? The political voices who state that view clearly because they think Americans can be challenged into change or the ones who try to avoid even implying the thought because they fear the power of backlash. Again, it is so telling that Ezra has to make the fulcrum of American politics this question because like, it's the only question that the politics that, that he and Obama advertises right. can ever address in any way, shape, or form. Everything else... Every other factor about like why, what, what, what motivates Americans' political beliefs or behaviors or what alienates them or what makes people so fucking angry and scared and afraid all the time is completely out of the question. It's irrelevant because they know that the politics that they offer cannot do a goddamn thing about nope. any of it. And so it's the que- problem is the question of what kind of speech is the president going to give at our national pep rally? But even that is delusional because we have... We've gone past the point where a president can do reach across a divide or speak to the country as a whole because of the reality that politics has lost its ability to to uh, address actual problems, and so people are just these politicians are just mascots for one or another side of a culture war, and that by definition means that you can never speak to the people and raise raise their. Uh, Whatever the fuck, like the, the the president is essentially, yeah, he's our national therapist, and he's going to get us all to a breakthrough, and then we're all going to hug each other and then act differently, and that's going to fix things, as opposed to the fucking material conditions that are deteriorating behind uh, beneath everyone's feet and driving everyone fucking crazy. He goes, uh, when I brought up that passage about the Tea Party, Obama was frank in describing his calculations. One of the ways I would measure it would be. Is it more important for me to tell a basic historical truth, let's say about racism in America right now, or is it more important for me to get a bill passed that provides a lot of people with health care that didn't have it before? Okay, well, if it's on that, it probably would have been more important for you to say a basic truth about racism in America because the ACE was not it, chief. It Sorry about it. that. It didn't help anyone. You know, it provided people with health care that didn't have it before. Shut the fuck up. The only good part of the ACA was the Medicare expansion. That was it. Everything else was making people pay money they didn't have for insurance they couldn't use. That's it. And on a website that didn't work. And it's like, okay, there's like this liberal like demand that like, you know, all politics now should be about speaking truth about America's white supremacist yeah. past. It's like, okay, that's well and good, but if you're literally doing nothing else, then it's like completely hollow. Well, it's, it's not only like, hollow. If, if you're if you're just doing that, it's like a Brewster's Millions thing where you have to spend the most amount of money and <laughs> yeah, get the least amount yeah, of people yeah. to vote for you. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like at the end of Beto's campaign where he was like, the last things were like, um, I'm against Medicare for all. I'm against like, yeah, really looking at anything. Uh, I guess I'm like passively for a higher minimum wage, but I'm not really going to talk about that. My main things are I'm going to I'm coming for the church and guns. And it's like. Oh, you just wanted to get out of this as quickly as possible. Well, I mean, like, yeah, winning or losing is sort of secondary, though, to the main goal of this, which is to reorient the Democrats as the party of minorities and college-educated white people. That's it. Well, college-educated people broadly, but among white people, the college-educated ones, because they got the money, they, they live in the strategic areas, and you can, you, you can uh, be a party under that 
flag without ever having any genuine pressure to address any of the manifold and manifest uh, pathologies of American political economy because they don't care about that stuff. Uh, the people at the bottom care. The bottom, the bottom half of that uh, uh, coalition certainly fucking care. But at the top, it is completely dominated by people who want politics to be therapeutic exclusively because they have a vested interest in maintaining the system as it exists. Yeah, I mean, the problem they run into with this, at least on the presidential level, is that they have no backbench of, like, younger party members who understand this trade-off. Who who do they have after Biden? Uh, Kamala motherfucking try- Harris. She's going to be president. Yeah, she's going to... Dude, Biden, Biden's approval ratings are at, like, 99%. <laughs> Everyone loves it when he goes out there and just, you know, we talked about it last episode... But like Kamala, even with that, is still like her shit's underwater. Yeah, I don't. The only person she could win against is like a no swag Republican who couldn't win the primary anyway. Jeb Bush. The only person, yeah, she would win against like if JD Vance was like given the <laughs> nomination. Like it had to, it would have to be someone totally swagless, and even then, it's a fight. JD Vance, by the way, sitting at four percent in a like a <laughs> ten six person race for Ohio Senate right now. Can I just say I am so I'm going to be so happy watching him eat shit because his entire marketing push has been like taking these ideas that are legitimately good that people want, like, you know, free uh, preschool and everything and, you know, free dental or MFRA and just being like, oh, this is to get like normal people hate this. And it's like, oh, is that is that what you think you are? You think you're fucking normal? (laughs) Guy who wrote a book about how everyone in his life is backwards and went to work for Peter Thiel. That's what you think you are normal. No normal person is voting for you. Turns out. Well, also, I mean, he's just doing like the the same shit Obama's doing, but from the other from the opposite angle. I mean, he's just coming yeah. at the culture war from the right and just yeah. being like, uh, yeah, like I, I wish we could have free uh, universal pre K in this country, but unfortunately, critical race theory has taken it over, and that's what we're gonna fight now. Um, yeah, he goes here. Uh, he admitted. Klein uh, continues. Uh, he admitted that there was a psychic cost to not always just telling the truth, and fondly referenced the Key and Peel skits about Luther, his anger translator. Mm. But he didn't worry over whether he'd been wrong to bite his tongue. One thing that occurred to me as we were talking is that Obama's view of his own political situation echoes the current reality of the Democratic Party. Barack Hussein Obama, a black man running for office during the era of the war on terror, understood the deck was stacked against him. I mean, like, so badly stacked against him again that he easily won election yeah. against John McCain, yeah. like the whitest, oldest, grandest Republican who of ran, all time. And then Mitt with, Romney. Like, with, who ran, and, and McCain and Palin ran a, a race campaign. Like, they tried to use that as a, as a wedge. It didn't work because the fucking economy was collapsing and he was promising to do something about it. And then he fucking didn't. If he was going to win... He would need the support of people inclined to view him with suspicion. He would need not just to speak to their hopes, but to defuse their fears. To hear Obama tell it, those fears were not just that too much change would come too fast, but that those who fought that change or worried over it would be judged or cast out. People knew I was left on issues like race or gender equality and LGBTQ issues. I mean, like, wasn't he against gay marriage? He was, in fact, yes. Yeah, no, he said, he said it was like this, oh, I think the state should decide. I mean, uh, like, they should decide uh, what a man and uh, another man w- want to do uh, in a limousine together. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the reason I was successful campaigning in downstate Illinois or Iowa or places like that is they never felt as if I was condemning them for not having gotten to the politically correct answer quick enough or that they were morally suspect because they had grown up with and believed in more traditional values 
Democrats, too, face an unforgiving context. Their coalition leads young, urban, and diverse, while America's turnout patterns and electoral geography favor the old, rural, and white. According to 538, Republicans hold a 3.5-point advantage in the Electoral College, a 5-point advantage in the Senate, and a 2-point advantage in the House, even after winning many more votes than Republicans in 2018 and 2020. Democrats are at a 50-50 split in the Senate and have a bare four-seat majority in the House. Odds are they will lose the House and possibly the Senate in 2022. This is the fundamental asymmetry of American politics right now. To hold power, Democrats need to win voters who are right of center. Republicans do not need to win votes who are left of center. Even worse, Republicans control the election laws and redistricting processes in 23 states, while Democrats control 15. Uh, just going on here, it's because most Democrats I know are panicked over the convergence of their geographic disadvantage and the, and the Republican assault on democracy. In my view, they're right to be. The situation is dire, and if the Republican Party could reorient itself around more competent candidates, it could become catastrophic. Obama has argued that Senate Democrats should abolish the filibuster and pass the legislation necessary to protect American democracy. I wish they'd listened to him on that, but as of now, the Democrats' democracy agenda is imperiled, and so, and so are they. I mean... You said, like, Obama made the phone call to end the Democratic primary. Like, you're telling me he can't make a phone call to Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema? I mean, I understand, like, the, the pressure points are a little bit different there. But, like, it just seems to me like... Well, the thing is, it's not Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. They are there to take the heat for the fucking 15 other Democrats who wouldn't want like, to like vote Chris for Coons. those things either. And now yeah. they don't have to say Chuck anything. Schumer. That's, it's like the idea that it's just these two because they're the ones who publicly say it. It's like, really, the rest of the Democratic Senate fucking caucus all of whom got there by eating baby brains in back rooms are just champing at the bit to do this shit. And it's these two gomers who are stopping them from doing it. No, I've they're the, the two who can be public about it with the least amount of backlash because Manchin thinks, hey, I'm from West Virginia. None of this matters anyway. There's no, no way a Demo- I can be pressured by Democrats. And fucking Kristen Stewart, or Kristen Stewart, Kristen Cinema. <laughs> Uh, she wants to fucking like host a, a reboot of Family Double Dare, with, where like the losing family is executed. That, that it's filmed yeah. on like a fucking uh, oil derrick in international waters. Like that's her long-term goal here. So there's no way you could pressure either of them. So that's great. It leaves everybody else off the hook. But even if you were able to figure out a way, like, hey, uh, Joe, we've got the beam on your shitty uh, uh, EpiPen daughter. Then what the fuck is Mark Warner going to do or Chris Coons or any of these other Draculas? It's the it's the party. They don't want to do the shit. They have no interest in doing it. Their structure does not uh, allow them to do it. The, 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 the uh, fable that we have about these fucking uh, personalities standing in the way of it, like the lady in her dumb boots and her anime uh, hair doing the thumbs down. That's just what gets us all riled and gets us to imagine that there is a party here beyond these individuals that actually stands for anything that you imagine could make this country livable in the near future. I, I've, I've seen them go out of their way to elect Christed cinemas in deep blue states and, you know, Obama's favorite purple states in ever in swing states my entire life. Like. Really, ever since 2006, when they were like, they sort of, you know, winking nod at the uh, coastal donors and major urban center major donors and were like, hey, check these out. Check, check out this new model we came up with. It's, um, it's a blue dog, Dem- it's a new blue dog Democrat who's like younger and uh, served in the military or something. Uh, I've seen them roll these out in places where you could win with someone far less shitty. And it's like, at what point? Do you do you not realize that it's like they're doing that for a reason? 
that's why they made this model. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, but like, you're right. I mean, it's, it's not it's not Mansion or fucking Kristen Stewart because <laughs> she dumped the Democratic Party like a dog, <laughs> folks, like a dog. Uh, no, but like the point is like when like like people they're just like oh like well what would you do like there's just nothing they can do like oh like oh oh I guess you just want Obama to pick up the phone and it's just like well okay if if they take seriously this this thing about like the Republicans war on democracy which I mean like I mean I, I don't know they, they probably fucking should but again like they they don't because winning elections it's like it would be perfectly okay with them for the Republicans to basically enshrine themselves as like a permanent rule by minority. They'd be fine with that because then they're off the hook for doing anything. But my point is, like, when people ask, like, oh, look, they just simply can't, you know, get people to vote the right way. And it's just like, look, that's their problem, not mine. And if just like, just ask you, you're like, oh, tell me what they should do. Tell me what Chuck Schumer should do. And the answer is, I don't know, pretend that there's a popular left-wing candidate who has a chance of winning the presidency or that, uh, let's say, uh, Chris Coons or Cinema. or whatever. Pretend there's a bill working its way through the, the Senate that, to cut off uh, military aid to Israel or Saudi Arabia. <laughs> then, then you tell me what they would do in that situation. Tell me what they would do if there was like any actual sincere, popular like, legislation to pass Medicare for all. They would find a way to fucking get their way. The... That is why it's so hard to take like the hyperbolic like insurrectionists and like proto civil war and all this shit. Yeah, all this all this highly emotional language in the left lib circle. It's not that I don't think that Republicans, you know, aren't trying to keep people from voting and like are fundamentally opposed to like any any even partially good American project. No, I agree with that, but it's it's hard to take the moral invective when your only solution is to vote for Democrats and you seem to be completely blind to what they're doing or not doing. You, you in this can't case. you can't say that like the Republican Party is so far gone that they fomented a coup that literally tried to execute me. And then in the next breath say, and that's the reason why it's so important we have their support on our infrastructure bill. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, if this is like we're at the verge of civil war, we were almost murdered, this is life or death, this is life or death of the, the democracy, okay, we'll end the fucking filibuster because this sounds like your only shot. Yeah, because from it sounds like you have to do this and like, you know, pass voting protections and do all this shit and maintain the presidency and maintain like a sliver of a majority in the House and Senate or you'll never have power again. But I mean, I actually think they're just excited to do the past four years over again. Yeah. They made a lot of and money. I just I just saw a headline today. They said that uh, the Senate parliamentarian has ruled that the Democrats can only have one more instance this year where they uh, pass a budget through reconciliation. Yeah. You're only allowed to do it one more time. And Chuck Schumer was like, oh, we were counting on doing it twice. We're foiled again. <laughs> and it's just like, does anyone buy this shit? Does yeah. anyone believe in this shit anymore? He's the parliamentarian. The parliamentarian. Like a fucking... Uh, like it's not no one voted for this person. No it's like they have no authority. And they they have can change no the rules tomorrow. They, yeah, there's no... It is an advisory ruling. And like, so it's like, this is why, like, it, 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 it fucking, it, it's like, uh, it fucking, like, it just lands like a turd when I have to read people like Ezra write about, like, hmm, this fundamental issue with American politics today is that Democrats need to court right wing votes, but Republicans don't need to do the same to their, like, to the left wing or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, it is weird that, like, 18 million more people voted for Democrats and Republicans and they still don't have a fucking minor, like, they still don't have 
uh, a majority or whatever. They have a bare two-seat majority or whatever, or that three more million more people. It's like all these things you could fix if you wanted. It's right. Like you, you could fix these problems tomorrow if you really wanted to, but they don't. It would have to be a different party, though. Yes. I mean, they would if fundamentally he, yeah. have to be a different party. Like they would have to pursue uh, an agenda that they f- are constitutionally capable of doing. Like it, it's not even a choice. There is nobody in this structure who can choose to do anything differently. Uh, since the seventies, the instead, the uh, incentives have all pointed in one direction, which is, all right, labor's dead. We now have to uh, reform our party along a suburban corporate axis, and that means finding issues to keep that base happy. So yeah, we're now we're the anti-white supremacy party, and that's it, because that's the thing that we can get all these people on the same page for, and which does not implicate any of our actual uh, donors and and power brokers. I mean, and so like as a result, you get these fucking uh, the, these fucking like eight hundred word dick sucks from Ezra Klein about how like oh it was just so it was just so hard for Obama to tell the truth, <laughs> you know, like as like is it or as, as if even him telling the truth would have made a fucking difference anyway. I'm just going to skip ahead to the end here. He says, toward the end of our conversation, I asked Obama if he still believed you could change people's politics through policy. He replied with the central what if of the last decade. Let's say a Joe Biden or the person who was running Hillary Clinton had immediately succeeded me and the economy suddenly has 3% unemployment. I think we would have consolidated the sense that, oh, actually these policies Obama put in place worked. He said, the fact that Trump interrupts essentially the continuation of our policies but still benefits from the economic stability and growth that we had initiated means people aren't sure. Biden is essentially finishing the job, Obama told me. We'll see if Joe Biden and the Democrats pass H.R. 1 in some version of the American Families and Jobs Plans. Then the Obama-Biden approach to politics will have proven itself out. But if they fail to pass H.R. 1 or the American Families and Jobs Plans and then lose the House and Senate in 2022, how open will liberals be to hearing about the virtues of more candidates in the Obama lineage? Not very, I suspect. Coalitions are less emotionally satisfying than confrontations. Pluralism doesn't go nearly as viral as division. The politicians who preach the harder path have to be able to deliver. Obama knew this full well. The point was to win, he writes. I wanted to prove to blacks, to whites, to Americans of all colors that we could transcend the old logic, that we could rally a working majority around a progressive agenda, that we could place issues like inequality or lack of educational opportunity at the very center of the national debate and then actually deliver the goods. Well, you failed. <laughs> you lose, asshole. Yeah. You, fuck, you, you didn't do shit. I just want to give some appreciation to what a rotten writer Ezra is. Like, just a hand, uh, a middle finger will get more retweets than a handshake. Thank you, Ezra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he goes here. <laughs> really good. Uh, just close it out. He writes here. This, this is another way in which the reality of our politics defies the aesthetics of our politicians. God, what f- absolute drivel. Absolute drivel. Crap. <laughs> Crap. The true agents of democratic radicalization right now aren't leftists in the House, but senators like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. There you go, Matt. Who, by indulging Republican obstructionism and preferring the preservation of the filibuster to the protection of democracy, are imperiling the entire theory of politics they claim to support. There you go. That's that's Ezra Klein on Obama. Pretty good. I I honestly, uh, I could really go for some schnauzer. Any of you guys? So to close things out today, um, got a got a classic Chapo reading series here. I'd like to preface it by saying 
Brothers and sisters, I know sometimes it may feel lonely walking the pilgrim's path, but you are not alone. You always have a friend in Rod. That's right. It's Rod Dreher, everybody. We're taking, taking another journey back into the mind palace of Rod Dreher. This comes courtesy of the American Conservative, headlined to his blog post, What's Happening to America? Let's just dive into Rod Dreher here. This is, this is a choice one. Uh, just, just like by way of prefacing this, I don't know if, like, if, if you've been following the Rod canon as closely as I am, but for like the last like six months or so, he's been living in, in Budapest in Hungary. <laughs> he's literally he's just like he's hanging Benedict out. He's Benedict optioning. Yeah, he's, 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 Benedict, he's Benedict optioning in one of the largest European capitals, one of the, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. Uh, but, he, but, you know, he's a fan of Viktor Orban and, you know, his nationalist, uh, Christian, sort of uh, pseudo-fascist government. And uh, it says Rod would like to spend some time in the country where, in a country that's more, more sort of, more to the liking, more to his liking. Somebody ought to build a country that works. But Rod is, Rod is like doing a tour of Steven Seagal's life. Like Louisiana, like now he's going to where Steven Seagal's made all his movies since 2010. Oh shit, you're right. He's better. He's going to wear like a giant uh, kimono soon, and that's going to be a great look for him. <laughs> yeah. uh, next Rod iteration, he's going to wear a do rag and hang out with Ja Rule. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for him to drive an APC into a fucking dog kennel. <laughs> um, oh, and then also, like, so by way of prefacing this, Rod has been, um, so he's been, he's been sort of, I guess, pseudo-vacationing, pseudo-benedicting option in a European capital. But I know you guys saw the pictures of him doing, like, the hardest soy face ever. Ah! Rod, yeah, you can, uh, you can not hide who you are. Rod's, That's what I saw from that. Rod soy-facing in front of the oysters that he was just oh, like, boy. oh, it was... It was. It was. It, he folks, failed the Voight comp test there. <laughs> folks, it's Rod. <laughs> it's Rod. All right. So this is this is his blog post. I mean, I, I just love all of Rod's blog posts. They all they all have, and I say they all have headlines like "What's happening to America?" And directly underneath the headline is a screen cap of three animated beavers who are smiling and holding pride flags. <laughs> so like this is like so the the article begins. He goes. I went to a garden party tonight went over in the to Buddha a Hills. Party. <laughs> I love how I, I love I love how fucking monastic his life is. He's eating oysters and going to garden parties in Budapest every fucking night. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's like that's Rod. I think I found your problem. Wherever you go, you are. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, goes here. Um, he goes. I went to a garden party tonight over in the Buddha Hills. I met there a journalist who writes about national security and defense for a Hungarian magazine. Okay, all right. Okay, okay. okay so he's like, yeah, obsessed with the national security of uh, Hungary, and he writes for a Hungarian magazine. He said to me, it really upsets us to see what's happening in America. It's not the America we knew. I was at Georgetown not long ago and met this student from the Midwest who wanted to go into the foreign service. I asked him what he wanted to do with his career. He said, destroy white supremacy. He is as white as I am. These are people who will be running America one of these days. Your country is tearing itself apart, and this is hard for us to see. We loved America. We looked up to it. Okay, so like, it's a very specific type of person at this garden party, which is a Hungarian defense official who loved America. <laughs> Let's just say that's, that's among us. Yeah, yeah, that's someone's imposter. Okay, the man seemed genuinely sad and uncomprehending. What could I say? I fell into conversation with two men, one a journalist, the other a retired diplomat. They spoke with awe about the speed of the collapse of our civilization. 
Okay, they're, they're, they're speaking in odd tones about the collapse of our civilization at a garden party together where they're sipping wine and, and talking about what they read in the news today. And the reason that civilization is ending is because the disgusting reptile ghouls are going to staff our foreign service and uh, assassinate uh, foreign leaders and uh, ensure the continued hegemony of the American petrodollar are going to go from thinking that they're defending white supremacy to thinking that they're dismantling it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, he goes... Uh, uh, they agreed with what's, that what's happening to America is going to happen to Hungary sooner or later. Neither of them could account for the rapidity of the collapse through rational explanation. They agreed that there is something supernatural going on here. <laughs> of course there is. Of it's course the there is. What else could account it's for it? The, it's other always than, the devil. It's always the dark forces. It's always the dark forces. And by the way, when I, I love that this is a classic Rod piece because there about, there's about four people that he references having conversations with. One or all of them could be completely made up. Yeah, and I, I like with Rod. Usually, I, I I err on the side of these are all characters in his head. Yeah, no, he's in the Friedman world where I just assume with a, unless I have documentary evidence that anyone they're talking about isn't real. Yeah, Rod is like he's writing the like world's longest spiritual successor to Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> like he was just. He was just alone at like an abandoned warehouse that has like shrubbery growing all over it. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I was at a garden party with a cleric, a mage. <laughs> he goes, uh, uh, Hungary is a very secular country, so I assume they were speaking metaphorically. They weren't. <laughs> of course they weren't, Rod. They were hanging out with you. Yeah. Um, someone said to me that American culture is still immensely powerful. Nobody cares about Germany. They make great cars, okay, but what else? Nothing. America is still cool. We may be decadent as hell, but our culture still matters to these people. I shared a taxi back to the pest side with an American graduate student studying here. He's a Christian who reads this blog. Okay. All right. I just want to pause here for a second. Like, This is the next person Rod is going to have a conversation with. And again, he's talking about the just breakneck pace at which our, our, our civilization itself is collapsing around us. And he's going um, to a garden party on one side of Budapest, and then he's taking an Uber back to the other side of Budapest with a grad student <laughs> who reads his blog. And he goes, um, <laughs> he's a Christian who reads this blog. He said he saw the Blues Clues segment with the drag queen singing about a pride parade, including the Beaver family with the trans member sporting mastectomy scars. Okay, folks, I'm just going to read that sentence again. Uh, he's a Christian who reads this blog. He's taking a cab with me back to the other side of Budapest. He said he saw the Blues Clues segments with the drag queens singing about the Pride Parade, including the Beaver family with the trans members sporting mastectomy scars. He's just dropping that like it's something that we all know oh, about. Oh, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, the Blues Clues segment with the mastectomy scars and the Pride flag. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. He goes, that show meant a lot to me as a kid, he said. It started the year I was born. It was a big part of my childhood. Now his voice faded off. Okay, I mean, like... I don't know what is funny. Like, this is what I love reading Roger Ayer so much. It's like I don't know what option is funnier that he totally made up this grad student who's crying about blues clues in the back of a fucking taxi in Budapest, <laughs> or that he, that he actually, that actually does exists. is that he actually does spend his time at going to a guarded party and then just you know taking a cab home with a grad student who's a fan of my blog. <laughs> A fan of my blog and blues games. <laughs> <laughs> He's eight years old. Yeah. It's like, this is like, this is, it's like, 
this is the Barney bit. <laughs> like just all these adults being like, I've really been become I've become disturbed by all the themes that have been in Paw Patrol this last year. <laughs> he goes here, it's like so Rab Amari says. Look around you, said the student. Look around you, and you can't believe the depra- depravity. You want to ask God how long? Now that's the question Rod was asking him on the grinder before they met up. <laughs> Some, something dark and depraved is coming. It's already here, and it's going to get much worse. Prepare, prepare, prepare. These people who have lived through totalitarianism know what they're seeing. You just talked to a guy who was uh, born the year Blue's Clues debuted. What fucking totalitarianism has he lived under? But prepare, prepare, prepare. Shut the fuck up. If you believed any of this, you wouldn't be having these European vacations. Where's your compound, Rod? Honestly, like, he is not really Benedict optioning too hard. Like, where, where are his, where's his root cellar? Where are his preserves? No, this is the eggs Benedict option. He's going to brunch. <laughs> oh, God. He lives like the most like bug man yep. cosmopolitan lifestyle yep. and then he, out of anyone. And then he absolves himself by fretting about the Blue's Clues uh, pan gender party, which is just the exact fucking reflection of that uh, State Department zombie who, who wants to stop white supremacy. It's like we're all they're all living the same uh, the decadent, urbane existences, parts of cogs in the same machine, but they need a drama to validate their existence as part of it and to absolve them of responsibility. And they just pick one side or the other of this fucking sterile culture war to, to give their life meaning. I just, can't, I just can't describe to you how funny it is that he's closing with something dark and depraved is coming. And the headline to the article is just an image of three cartoon beavers <laughs> smiling with each other. <laughs> Rainbow flag. Yeah, it's just like, like oh, oh it's just so it, it's something unspeakable is happening here. It's supernatural. <laughs> it's, it's unmentionable. The great ones are awakening. Yog Saga is the key in the gate. Blue's clues as the flesh. Where are the clue? The flesh will be blue. None will be saved I, in the purge. Prepare, prepare, prepare. It's not the most ridiculous thing in the article, like, but I just want to zero in how funny it is that the grad student was like, Blue's, Blue's Clues was incredibly important <laughs> so to important my life. to me. <laughs> like, just like, uh, these are the, okay, this is the fucking pussy that Rod, like, or these are Rod's disciples that are going to save Christendom in yeah. the West. Some fucking pussy who's crying over a children's cartoon show having yeah. pride stuff in it. You know how important The Simpsons was to my childhood? I've now lived 25 years of that Dog show shit. being in the absolute shitter. Awful. Fucking just cringe embarrassment every time I look at it. But you Ooh. know what? It's cool to me because the classic episodes are still, still there. there. They're still, still there. They're ne- <laughs> oh, look, Homer's going to space. Oh, my God, this is such a good one. So the, this asshole's just get the, 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 the Blue's Clues classics. Yeah, were- just go watch Steve. Clap your sticky little hands together when you notice the backpack or whatever the fuck it is. I, is that Dora <laughs> the Explorer? I don't know. I literally don't remember the shit I watched as a child. I'm just imagining Rod like like at a gastropub and... <laughs> He's just like, he looks at his watch and he's like, oh my God, it's uh, 9 a.m. in America. Barkeep, could you, uh, could you turn on PBS? <laughs> turn on Nick, Nick Jr., please. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And then it, yeah, it's playing like Paw Patrol or some shit. And he's like, there you go. He, he kneeled like Kaepernick. <laughs> and he just storms out. And then they're like, oh, Rod, can we get you back? Here's a plate of oysters. Ah! <laughs> These are simply divine. How does he not know about Soyface? 
uh, I don't know. That online, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The guy that fixated on masculinity and virility should very well know not to look like that in a photograph. <laughs> yeah, he's probably like the least virile person alive. Oh, look, he's just he's he's fighting the decadence of the West by spending time at garden parties in Hungary and then taking a cab home with a grad student who's just simply writes to, is a fan of his. Okay, <laughs> it's it's he's awesome. He he's essentially El Cid. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's another reading from the Book of Rod. You know how like sometimes we like we read a guy so long that we like get sick of them. Rod is never no never. No, I'm never gonna get sick of Rod. And like the only time we stopped reading him was the Exorcism article because it was too like dark. <laughs> no, I was just too depressing. I guess kept thinking of the poor wife who was clearly going through some real shit. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was depressing. I, but we I mean, did we ever get by the way of like. A no. final confirmation. No. Like, did he get an interview with the demon? No. <laughs> I, hey, hey, Rod, I'm a long-time reader. <laughs> Rod, have you seen what they've done to the Animaniacs? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rod, Scrappy Goo has gone woke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. He, he's the, he's the Rod, best. Rod, the Bunny has a penis now. <laughs> <laughs> Elmo gives his pronouns now. They're he they. Like he's like that's why he's awesome because it's like the reason we get sick of people is because it's like they do the same thing too yeah. often. Yeah, like I don't I don't read McCardle anymore because he's just too fucking stupid and boring. Yeah, and it's like she's doing the same thing. It's like always like picking like a cruelty of capitalism and explaining why it's like not that bad on the grand scale of things. But Rod is like He's in the same like genre, which is you know downfall of the West, the homo jihad coming to take Christendom. But he's always like adding these new things, <laughs> like the, the, the like the, a grad student crying about Blues Clues is like it's he's always. Funny, it's like a joke you would do. It's like yeah, it, it, it's 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 so fucking funny that like he has not a shred of self awareness about any of this. That's the beauty. Part. That's, that's that's what makes Rod so beautiful because like he's just like. Noble Christian knight, the time will come when we must defend the gates of Vienna again. But until then, um, uh, I, I met a wonderful young man who cried to me the other night about blues clothes. It's just like, <laughs> 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 what do you what do you think the Saracen when they're reading this, Rod? What do you think that they're what do you think they're thinking when they're thinking about you fucking crying and then soy facing over your fucking oysters? Yeah, the Turk like- is licking their chops. They lust for Hungary again. <laughs> It's like this is as funny and like well structured to be funny as like Alan Partridge. Yes. Oh my God. No, the Rod is absolutely like American Christian closeted Alan Partridge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so good. He's like, he's one of these guys. There are a lot of these guys who like, it's like, I wish you knew like what a genius you are. In the like, you're not doing the thing you intend to do, but in something else. Like, this is the best comedy writing made in this year. Oh, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just imagining Rod at another garden party, and he just goes, "There's sex people in." <laughs> he's the he's the best. Like he's we're we never Rod. gonna stop reading we love him. Rod. I get excited every time I see him. The thing pop is, up. like the worst regret of my life is getting blocked. I mean, by like him. yeah, a lot. A lot I of am to- bummed by that. Too, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also I'm also blocked by him on his blog as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man. Um, but the thing is. Like the thing is, like Rod, he does repeat himself a lot. Like they're not all gems. Like they they, they show up like one, once in a while, but when they do, yeah. Like because a lot of the times it's just like he's just like uh, 
here's a thousand word reader comment that I have to share with you that he wrote himself. Yeah. And it's just like, my, my kid's kindergarten class made the white kids be slaves for a day. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, but no, it's just, it's just the little details that make Rod so fucking good. There are so many things that like he did that he abandoned, but like, it's like just his one-offs are so funny. Yeah. Like being like, Oh, here's, here's some reader mail. And it's like, I was looking at the barbecue Karen skull, and she's clearly Samoan. <laughs> yeah, that was so good. <laughs> that was so fucking good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goddamn. I would never want him to stop. It's like... Oh, he never will. Yeah, he should be, like, given a grant to write more. I mean, he does have one. I mean, how the fuck do you think he spends time, has money to spend time in Hungary? I mean, like, the, he should be, like, the poet laureate <laughs> of America. <laughs> we should hire him. I just would. write bits I would pay for us. Rod a salary. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. I'm just like Rod. Like, just the thing you do where you make up readers and friends who tell you <laughs> insane things. Could you just do that for us? That's the best thing about when he makes up people because he's such like a he's such like a weird pussy that he's like, oh, oh what would a cool guy be like? <laughs> yeah, it's like you just see how fucked up he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, what would a cool guy be like? Uh, dear Rod, I went to a baseball game the other day, and I noticed that um, uh, the family sitting in front of us, their daughter was wearing a baseball hat backwards, and I started crying. Something supernatural <laughs> is going on here. Yeah, Rod, ever since they made Spider-Man black, I've been having night terrors. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, he starts off by giving them an impressive job. He's like, this guy is a constitutional lawyer, and in his spare time, he solves uh, mathematic equations, like um, previously unsolvable mathematical equations. But uh, also, yeah, he was he was waterboarded in the trough urinal at Wrigley Field <laughs> because <laughs> he like didn't wear a pride flag or something. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I have a close friend of mine who is, um, you know, a, a secular college professor at a major American university. Um, <laughs> he's been wetting the bed every night and sleeping on the ceiling ever since taking a yoga class. Something dark is afoot. <laughs> he's, yeah, I like, I get so excited every time there's a new one. I like, I'm really going to try not to get blocked on this blog. That was really <laughs> my life. <laughs> All right. I think that does it for us today. Um, tomorrow, uh, Frequency Fest. We'll, we'll see you at StacyCon 2021. Please come hang out with us tomorrow, all day starting at one. Uh, our, yeah, our, our set. If you if you just want to be a loser and only watch Chapo Trap House and not any of the other amazing acts, uh, we are on at seven thirty to eight forty five. Seven thirty to eight forty five. We will see you tomorrow yeah. on the computer at Frequency Fest. All right, guys. We have E one tomorrow at one. Uh, don't worry. I will. I've figured out what was wrong with my alarm system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did that for E1, but not for us. You yeah. son of a bitch. Cutting. No, I didn't try to do it for us. I just fucked up. Okay, all right. I well, just I, fucked up. Hey, Matt, a hey, foreground friend, um, what do you want to do about this background? <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it off. All right, all right. Maybe we'll just, just, just like, stop talking to him. Maybe we just won't return his text. Maybe just, yeah, okay. We'll just gracefully. Okay, all right. Bye. Bye.